0: the silly goose gang podcast
1: and here we are the start of episode 30 our unofficial unendorsed by national <laughs> geographic shark and we are joined by zone jiu-jitsu black belt and more importantly for this episode shark expert yanis Papastamatiou. close got enough got
0: it right got it right that was good <laughs> <will do>
1: <laughs> <laughs> So, <laughs> you,
2: That's, to a <laughs> uh, it's It's um, great to speak to you, Giannis, and um, you know, just just from doing uh, you know a little bit of research, it's been a fascinating life that you've that you've lived in terms of your travel and you know your education and everything. You seem to have been everywhere, and been lucky to tie it all in with some jiu-jitsu. It's been a, a pretty fascinating. Yeah. Well, first of all, thanks for having
0: me. And uh, I, I have definitely moved around a lot. You know, I'm actually originally from London. So London, born and raised, um, moved to Greece, lived in Greece for seven years, back to London, uh, back to the UK, London, and then moved on to the US and, and have lived all over the US from California, Hawaii, you know, Florida and, and uh, a brief uh, couple of years in St. Andrews in Scotland. Uh, and then, as you said, luckily, was able to to pick up jiu-jitsu about seventeen years ago, and and it's something I've I've never stopped doing. Yeah, it's a pretty uh,
2: it's a pretty difficult thing to give up once you start. It gets uh, it gets under your skin, and uh, it's impossible it, to, to give up. It is,
0: yeah. I mean, and I and I, it was definitely not the first martial art I had come from. You know, I started with Taekwondo and Aikido and kind of sort of classics like that, and then had moved into boxing um, for a while and. Um, Israeli Krav Maga which is what I was doing before I got into jiu-jitsu um, and uh, it was actually for Krav Maga that my interest really kind of started when they, they started introducing some some ground fighting and said oh they, we've taken this from Brazilian jiu-jitsu and I thought oh, I kind of liked I liked the rolling around grappling part so um, I thought I'd give it a shot and um, you know the interesting thing about Brazilian jiu-jitsu is it's a fairly young style in a lot of ways so it's mm. not something that you can find everywhere you know i've been fortunate that for the most part i've lived in places where there have been um really good instructors but i mean in the uk 15 years ago you know there was maybe two or three places in the whole country you could you could um find a place to train and in other parts of the world there was no you know there were countries where there was no instructors so it, it, mm. it's it's uh, certainly not uh something that uh, uh you know is as easy to find now it, i think it's it's changing but but it's it's changing pretty yeah. dramatically even over the last few years
1: yeah but, definitely
2: as um how does it feel then when you're when you're doing the old uh, day job and you're the you know the second most uh capable thing in the water
0: <laughs> uh, i mean most of my most of my day job is is like this in an office you know so uh, I, I i get to do some really cool stuff in the water um but I, that still probably makes up about twenty percent of my time. So despite despite yeah. all the cool videos, I would still say eighty percent of my job is mm. it's behind a desk. So um. uh, I, I need the jiu-jitsu to, to keep me keep me going. Okay. We were
1: we were saying off camera, weren't we, before we started recording that jiu-jitsu and sharks have this kind of link where. Typically white belts, you know. Now that me and Chris are blue belts, we can say that. But the little white belts when <laughs> we talk about, you know, the mat is the ocean and I'm the shark.
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> but you literally, you literally are that. You know, you're a shark expert and a uh, and a black belt in jujitsu.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I hear that quite a bit. Um, I would say, you know, I I get far more nervous around humans than I do most sharks. So I think, you know, often that the uh, the dangers may not be where most people think they are.
1: Yeah, I was like was was interviews, but as Chris was saying, research, you were talking, I think it was through Vice. You were saying there was one time you had to use mint control on a shark.
0: Yeah, there was. It was a shark. We had it was a reef shark that we caught to tag and we basically had it on the boat and we're putting the tag on. And I was, you know, pinning it down. And these are incredibly strong animals. You know, I mean, they're basically mm. all muscle. And so even though it wasn't that big a shark, it just suddenly launched into action and, um you know, she just basically bucked and threw me forward. And I, I, I basically had, you know, I used mount control. I got on my, pinched my knees and got my legs underneath, um, which was good because otherwise my, my head would have face planted by her mouth, um, which would not have been good. So I, I was able to use mount control to <laughs> maintain position. And I, I think uh, we tagged her and released her, but that may be the only time jiu has been used uh, on a shark.
2: What would, what, what would you have done if the, sh- the shark shrimped and got out? <laughs>
0: uh, I don't know I don't know you know because I said her, her mouth you know her mouth was was free at that point and um uh I just uh, remember because of that sort of you know mouth control I was able to stop myself I launched forward but but didn't go crashing down head first um you you, you it's not a good place to be when you have a, a yeah. shark with heads yeah. whose yeah. head is free
2: so we are so sorry so where did the um the the shark fascination start Yanis?
0: well that you know i remember being about five and telling my mum i was going to study sharks and so i remember from that early on deciding that's what i was going to do and again i i grew up in london so i was you know landlocked um my dad was greek so we would go to greece you know every summer so i spent a lot of time in the water. You know you 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 don't see many if any sharks in greece there are some there but you're not going to see them so i never saw any but my love of being in the uh, in the sea came from that um and as far as the sharks i mean i remember there was a few key documentaries and it's not like it is today you know now you you can turn on the tv at any point and see a shark documentary or you can find stuff online but in the in the 80s it wasn't like that um and there were very few Uh, film crews that were going to film sharks very few uh, diving camera uh, people were willing to get in the water with sharks so there was a national geographic uh, documentary in particular that i really loved and i had it on vhs and i just watched that continuously um, and that really uh, helped my interest and the other thing that also got me interested was actually jaws Uh, i know normally jaws had the opposite effect for many people um, but i actually thought hooper who plays you know who was the biologist played by richard draper was a a really cool character and I just found the whole thing fascinating. It's a great film. I love Jaws it's an amazing film. But uh, those I'd say were the things that kind of got me on my uh path towards wanting to study sharks.
1: I don't know if we need to double back for younger viewers to explain what VHS is.
0: <laughs> VHS is this primitive tool but used to watch films that you had to, yeah. it was a, basically a very large tape and I, I played it until it was worn down. Yeah.
2: It's um, I think um, I was one of the, the the sort of kids who I was fascinated with when I was younger, kind of dinosaurs. And then it was when I figured out I can't, I couldn't even tell you what age. Probably a similar age, you know, five, six, seven, eight year old. And then um, figured out there was a thing called a megalodon. And then it was like, whoa, this thing's in there. like, and it was like, you know, you, And then even now, to be fair, every now and again there'll be like some, you know, really crap sighting of a megalodon, and I end up going down this rabbit hole again. Like, what if the is there a megalodon?
0: Yeah. So just to, just to be sure, have you
2: have you seen a megadon
0: Yanis? I will, <laughs> oh, excuse me one second. All right. That's yes, good. Right. So you were saying Chris was just checking, have you seen a megadon? About megadon. And what you said before that? Oh, dinosaurs. Okay. Yeah, so yeah, I'll yeah. say that I had the same thing. I definitely had my dinosaur phase as well. And I can't remember if that was before the sharks or during the shark phase, but I I went through the same thing uh, and I remember that very clearly because of the, you know, the Natural History Museum in London which had, you know, some of the dinosaur exhibits. So I had that interest as well. Um, it's funny you mentioned Megalodon because, you know, again, back in the 80s, uh, outside of a small number of scientists, nobody knew what a Megalodon was. That was, you know, it, it's not the buzzword. It is now where where everybody knows what a Megalodon is. Uh, and then to answer your final question, no, I can I can say uh, definitively here on this podcast that Megalodon is extinct despite what <laughs> What some may wish it is, is <laughs> so we just have to, you know, imagine what what it was and uh, yeah. that. <laughs> yeah, I didn't. Uh, I didn't think it still existed. To be fair. Well, there is. Um. You know, there are. There are. There's definitely a. You know, continuing. You know, groups of, of people out there who do believe very strongly that it still exists or that it could exist. And and I'm going to say that it doesn't and it it couldn't. The
2: the 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 most recent. Um, the most recent uh, picture that was like I I don't know anything about sharks really so but there was one like from World War One next to a submarine. Have you ever seen that one?
0: Yeah, Where so that's a fake like, yeah, yeah. I d I,
2: I didn't know. That's what I'm saying. So, yeah, so, so
0: what really caused this problem was it was actually it was actually a show on I think it was on Shark Week. It was a fake documentary on Megalodon, which uh you know had marine biologists who were actually actors. They weren't real uh, biologists and then they had, you know, a series of these pictures that one of the ones you describe which is 100% fake Um, uh, and they did have a disclaimer at the end of the show which was kind of I think it came very very quickly at the end this is not real Um, but most people missed that part so uh, that really triggered a huge amount of like megalodon conspiracies and things like that that you know people believe in that there are actually megalodons out there now there's some huge white sharks out there so we can be you know um, take that instead. Yeah, you know,
2: exactly. If you uh Giannis, if you now tell me that my uh, guard passing sucks, I'm I'm done as a human being. That's uh... <laughs> oh gosh. We've, never, we've never practiced guard passing. it's, it's, it's gonna <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh, be funny. Um yeah, so it's uh it's it's yeah, it's, a, it's such a fascinating fascinating because um you know, I've seen so many of those kind of memes about, you know, you know, when people are you know swimming with sharks and it's like they you know here's the most dangerous uh you know the most dangerous species on planet and next to it's a peaceful
0: shark You're like
2: oh it's quite uh but i know you yeah. say that then you know they're not what they're kind of portrayed to be
0: no they're not and the you know the it's been really nice to see that the public image of sharks has changed so much over the last few decades i mean i i would say i started studying sharks about 20 years ago Um, And even in the last two decades, the public opinion of sharks has changed a lot. And if you compare that to what it was in the 70s or 60s or 50s, you know, it's it's just completely night and day. So I think more and more people are realizing that they're not the killing machines that uh, they've been portrayed as. The chance of getting uh, bitten and killed by a shark is extremely low. Uh, For the most part, human shark interactions are completely benign and peaceful. But at the same time, you know, they're not they're not uh, puppies or they're not kittens and they're not pets. Mm. They're wild animals uh, and um, they can cause uh, harm or kill you, some of them. Uh, and they have done. It's very rare, but it's, you know, you, you've got to, anytime you're in the water with one, respect it for what it is. And, and certainly don't, you know, take this approach that it's incapable of hurting me. It's not going to hurt me, but, you know, because, again, it's a wild animal. It's not concerned about your feelings. Yeah. How yeah.
1: Were you the first time you, sw- like? I don't know if you remember, the first time you kind of went into the water with a shark? Because even with your training, your understanding, is there still that bit in the back of your brain that goes, shit, this is actually a shark? Or, or, and do you still get that feeling, or is that just through repetition?
0: No, I mean, so I, I do remember very well the first shark I saw, and that was actually in the UK. It was off of uh, Weymouth, I believe, you know, in South, south England. Um, and it was, a you know, it was a little cat shark that was about that big. Uh, and I was overjoyed. I mean, I really was. That was my first shark. I think I was like 18, 19. And uh, I was really overjoyed. Um, before, you know, before I answer your second question, you know, I think we have to, we use the generic term shark, but obviously sharks can range from species that include cat sharks to tiger sharks to white sharks. So they're, you know, it's a huge uh, range and variety of different species. And, some of them I'm extremely comfortable in the water with uh, and other ones. I absolutely am always going to have some degree of nerves and, uh, you know, watch my back. I mean, we occasionally for some of the work I do, uh, get in the water with, with white sharks and I will never, there'll be never a time where I'm going to be complacent and not nervous in the water, of the white shark, mm. uh, because yeah. you, you gotta be on, on, on the game. Otherwise, e- even though the chance is a lot small, uh, even a, a small nibble could be fatal. And you just you know, you, you, yeah. you can't ever let your mind wander.
2: Yeah, I think um I think in fairness, you know, you are you're, you're saying the wild a- wild animals. Um and you know, you, you sometimes see these uh you know there's so many, you know, animal videos where you've seen um, you know, people trying to, you know, seeing a bear and, and trying to take a selfie with a bear and then it's like what the fuck what are you doing? Um yeah. you, know, it, you it's, know. There's one it's... You know, there was one with a, a tiger, uh, you know, in a line enclosure with a woman. I think she fell out. I think it was a Chinese woman. I think it was in China, and um, I'm sure they had like a falling out. And she got out of the car, and instantly the tiger just
0: grabbed her and dragged, drugged, yeah. you know, just, just took her away. And you're thinking, what
2: are you, you know, doing? So- what do you think these these are?
0: Yeah, and obviously, you know, some of those terrestrial predators are probably significantly more dangerous. So, for example. Okay. Tigers, they're, they're definitely confirmed cases of tigers that have targeted humans. Again, I don't think it's that common, but it's definitely uh, There are cases of, of, you know, one tiger uh, or even one lion that have targeted multiple, you know, humans on multiple occasions um, You really don't ever want to run into a grizzly bear um, That's out foraging, you know, because again, I think the chance of getting attacked is probably much higher than it is with a shark So I think I uh, mm-hmm there's much lower risk with uh, sharks, even big sharks compared to some of the, the land predators. But at the same time, you know, you're right. It, it's it's uh, you, you've got to, doesn't matter whether you're talking about a bear or a tiger or a shark, you know, you've got to yeah. just give it the respect for what it is. And again, it's it's never being doing anything to be malicious, um, it, but it also doesn't care about your feelings. And for whatever the reason, um, it would take very little effort to cause you significant harm or or kill you, um, yeah. and you always have to have that mindset. And again, it varies. You know, when I when I work with some small reef sharks, I'm not that I'm not concerned. But when I'm with the big ones, I, I, I always go in with, uh, I'd say, a, you know, sort of a healthy nervousness.
2: Just, um, just talking about uh, sort of on the subject of dangerous animals, Janice. I know you're in Florida, just Florida, just now. How are you are you near any? Because I know there's like a uh, quite a big problem now with, with alligators and and like
0: pythons and stuff. Are you aware about? Are you in, in regards to that? So, alligators you will find throughout Florida. Pretty much anywhere where you have water, um, there's a potential for an alligator to turn up. And so that's something that uh, I think everyone in Florida is, is pretty familiar with. Uh, I've actually done some research on, on alligators. So I don't only work okay. with sharks. I, I call, you know, my lab is called the Predator Ecology Lab. So we do work with some other predators and, and alligators have been one of them. Um, you know, alligator attacks are very, very rare, but uh, they, they have happened. Um, and obviously... The places you find them in like in some of the freshwater swamps things like that are not really places that people go to swim so they don't have as much chance of interacting with humans as opposed to let's say maybe sharks along the beach uh, but okay. yeah, there are some um down so i'm in miami uh, and we we're right next to the everglades so the everglades is where you uh, do find uh, some of the um pythons for example that uh mm. you know they're really big i mean some of them eat alligators Um, we also have crocodiles there we do have saltwater crocodiles in the Everglades Um, again for the most part they're staying in the Everglades which is not a place anyone goes to swim so we have very very little human interactions Uh, I've no I've not heard of a python attacking anyone uh, in Florida and I don't think I've heard of a crocodile either again because where the crocodiles are there's not much human activity
1: yeah, so okay. I suppose it's that distance, isn't it, keeping it away from the, the that human an, or the, sorry, the human I mean, animal interaction, or the, the opportunity to have those interactions, or more. Absolutely.
0: So when you look at when you look at whether it's number of shark bites or alligator bites or whatever it is, it's always partially going to be a function of how often do humans and that animal cross paths and interact. You know, so if you look at um, shark bites you get more in the summer why because more people are in the water in the summer and so <laughs> that obviously means that the, the chance of uh, a shark and a human crossing paths uh, and, and it being negative uh, goes up yeah that makes me i mean it makes sense <laughs> just, yeah, there's no, if there's just, no humans there then sense. you're not gonna have an interaction so you know yeah, so yeah, uh just makes sense, yeah. which, which yeah. Um, <laughs> So oh, I was going to say,
1: do you think that's part of the reason of the increase of attacks is that more people are spending more time at the beaches and the water, maybe surfing, scuba diving, stand up paddle boarding, those activities have maybe became more popular? So again, just the, yes. the high level, higher incidence?
0: Generally, yes. Because again, if you look at the number of humans, you know, doing in water activities, whatever that may be, that's obviously gone up a lot in the last 100 years. Uh, and so generally, you will see an increase in the uh, number of, of bites uh, taking place. And, we, you know, it's going to be interesting to see what the numbers are after this summer, because, you know, with mm-hmm. COVID, um, that has obviously probably you know, had, a, had a big effect on how many people go in the water, you know. And so I would expect to see that the bites are going to be much less this year. Now, who, you know, who knows if that's going to be true or not, but, mm-hmm. but we'd at least predict just because there's going to be less humans going in the water that there might be less bites
2: would that have um on the flip side of that yeah would that have an effect potentially next year if sharks start coming a little closer to shore would that have an effect is that possible the sharks would come further further well in shore?
0: there's so you know we have noticed and this is not scientifically proven i'm just saying based on observation that for example in the waters around here um around Miami, we have this sort of region between the ocean. You can basically go through the channels. You have this region of, of water called the Intracostal. Uh, and so it's, you know, it connects to the ocean, um, but it's in between the city, uh, between Miami Beach, for example, and the, and the rest of Miami. And we have had more observations of of kind of big sharks coming into not just sharks, big animals coming into the Intracostal, especially during the lockdown period, mm-hmm. so big hammerheads, for example. Uh, And I think if it is due to the lockdown, it's probably because there's been a lot less noise. You know, uh, it's a very popular area for boating, for example. And with the lockdown, there was very, very little, if any, boating going on. So it must have been an unusually quiet environment. Uh, You may not think of the ocean being noisy, but you can hear, believe me, you can hear noise if you start to listen. Um, And so I do think there probably were more animals coming in close to shore. If that's true, you know, that's not going to last long. As soon as boat activity increases, which it already has here, you're probably going to get those animals leaving. So I doubt there's going to be um, any effect by next year. I'd also add that by where the beaches are, um, sharks regularly go very close to the beach anyway, you know, so that that part is probably not changing much because you'll see them right up by the sand uh, in a normal year.
1: It's it's always crazy seeing those photos. We were watching one the other day, a documentary about sharks, and it was showing that overhead, almost like a drone shot, and people are paddling probably mid thigh depth, and there's sharks on the beach side of them.
0: Yeah, and so that's we really have they're
1: oblivious because they're, they're they're obviously smaller.
0: Well, we have that every year, so it's it's those are mostly black tip sharks. It's a migration; they migrate up from uh, up north, and they come down every winter spring this about the spring here and they they migrate back south again um and they are in their thousands i mean there's thousands of them it is i mean you look at the aerial footage and it's incredible um they're actually very very shy if you get in the water with them it's very difficult to see them underwater because if you ever get in the water you just they basically scatter and so often people don't realize they're there because you know they don't have that aerial view um and even if they do know they're there uh the chance of those animals biting you is is really very low because they're, they're again they're fairly small sharks um it does happen especially under certain conditions if it's been raining and it's murky and they might you know mistake your foot for something else um but generally the risk is is from those sharks really pretty low
2: yeah that, um that you know all, you know this this. Talk of them being reasonably close to the shore. And this is ridiculous
0: because I only, you know, swim in the ocean in Scotland, but it still freaks me out.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's if
0: it's, you're not, you know, again, I, I grew up in the UK. So I, I'm also like, you know, it's not something we're used to. But even here, I think people have only realized the extent of how many sharks are in the water. And by that, I mean the public recently. Uh, and that's because now we have things like drones, which everybody owns. And so people, there's, there's so much, you know, video of these sharks. I mean, 10 years ago, if you weren't flying a plane, you weren't going to be seeing that. And so uh, there wasn't that sort of not that it was unknown to science. It obviously was, but it was definitely not as clear to the public. Uh, You know, Scotland, uh, you know, you may not have sharks right up close to the beach. It's actually a pretty um, sharky environment. So it's actually a a good place to um, study sharks. You do have quite a few different species of sharks in, in Scottish waters.
1: Scottish waters was the first time I saw a shark I'm from originally from Arran over on the west coast and we get the basking sharks migrate up the west coast um, mm-hmm. and the first time I was out with my, my, my grandpa and I was in an old-fashioned wooden rowing boat and my grandpa tapped me on the shore and said look and we you know a rowboat four or five foot long and this sea monster when you're five years old with its mottled back just appeared bumped the boat and the boat wobbled and obviously I screamed in an unmanly fashion and <laughs> it's fine as the basking shark and i had never seen a shark before up until that point um and it had the you know the massive broad back and you know those, well the water just cruising along
0: yeah i mean you're incredibly lucky i i actually it's one of the few sharks which i haven't seen so it's actually very high on my list despite living in scotland it was very high on my list of species i would like to see um and i would you know Arguably, Scotland may be the best place in the world to go and see basking sharks. And you're actually now seeing, you know, an ecotourism industry start on that, where they're taking people out snorkeling to, to see them, because now people are coming from all over the world to see them, because that's the place to go to see them. And, and um, you know, basking sharks uh, eat plankton. So they're actually, you know, they're, they're not a threat in the sense that they're not, in, they're not uh, big carnivores, unless you're, you know, microscopic crustacean um so you're you're fairly um fairly safe um with the exception of the the only uh shark induced fatality I know was a basking shark that sunk a boat and and the sailors on board drowned <laughs> so oh, that's the only one i know of. this is um this does not do me any favors when i when I have to think about jumping in the, the sea to do some swimming you'll you'll is... you know you'll know where the basking shark areas are so <laughs> I wouldn't, uh, they're not <laughs> going argue you, so you'll be okay.
2: I freak, I freak out for you, Giannis, when I'm in the water, and you know, you touch something, and you go, oh, I don't know what that was, and it's like a, an, old, an old fishing net, or something.
0: It doesn't help when, when it's murky, and freezing. Yeah, yeah, yeah that, that is 100% true. You know, Scotland has actually some incredible dive sites, it really does, you know, always freezing, but but uh, really great diving, but, but you know, again, I grew up diving, uh, swimming in, in England, and, and, um, it was all. It's always murky uh, in England, anyway. At least where I, where I was swimming. But you you do quite a bit
2: of uh, diving as well. Is that is that right?
0: I do. I do a lot for for work. Um, in fact, it's almost exclusively for work now. So yeah, dive, diving is a pretty big component of, of my my research. Yeah, you do cave um, diving as well, don't you? Technical diving. I do. Key. Yeah. So uh, the the technical diving. I mean the technical diving is basically any sort of diving that goes beyond recreational limits. So like going much deeper than, than recreational divers can go or into caves. So I do actually, some of my non shark work is looking at coral reefs that are deep below 50 meters. And so for that, we have to use different equipment, um, and you know, go down for, for very long dives. The cave diving I do purely for fun. And that's actually really the only sort of diving I do for fun these days. I don't get to do it much anymore. When I uh, lived in North Florida, it's really amazing caves. You need you need the the, the freshwater springs. Um, it's about a five hour drive from where I am in Miami. So I only get up once a year. But I do really, uh, really love um, mm. going diving in, the, in those caves.
2: Sounds uh, funnily enough, we actually have a, 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 a cave uh, archaeologist an underwater archaeologist coming on soon that's uh, that you know goes into caves and stuff. Where we're really looking forward to that as well. It's something that seems really fascinating to be able
0: to go you well, know, you to have, have, look at things. Yeah, you do have caves to dive in in Scotland, but they sound gnarly like they are, you know, the, the, the caves in Florida are mostly like big, beautiful tunnels and caves, whereas the Scottish ones are, from what I understand, so tight that you don't even wear fins because there's no point, you're not swimming. You're in a in a tunnel filled with water, which is not for me. I, I get claustrophobic, so uh yeah that, and, and that, that. places are not for me. That's we had
1: the, uh, you know... yeah we had uh, Andy Torbett who's who does a lot of cave diving I know, he was
0: I know I... yes. mm-hmm. oh, do you know Andy oh, yeah, yeah, yeah
1: he was talking about um cave diving and he said there's one and I can't remember where it was but the entrance is called the letter box for yes. obvious reasons that is literally about eighteen inches Yep. And yet you've got to climb through that for like seven or eight minutes before you get to the actual cavern. And as you say, 99% of the time it's flooded. It's pitch black. It just sounds like ticking boxes of everyone's phobias.
0: Yeah. If, if I want to make myself like, feel claustrophobic i watch some andy's videos so some of the like there's one called like the Cavern of skulls which is not like it's not a good name right (laughs) it doesn't bode well but he i mean he he does some of the crazy stuff that i would never even dream of of doing um you know those really sort of exploratory uh caves very very tight tunnels um that's not for me i I have no interest in dry caving. like again going through tight tunnels is not uh, I, I'm too claustrophobic, so I, I like the big Florida caves, the big caverns, the big uh, caves there, but but not the tight stuff.
2: Yeah, I mean, I would, um, you know, I I would rather have to fight a grizzly bear than go through one of those tunnels.
0: Genuinely, oh, I'm, that's not even a joke. Yeah, when I when I, if you watch some of the videos of people getting, uh, especially some of the dry caving videos in England. Um, I think some stuff in Wales and and probably in Scotland too. I mean, it's, it's, it's chilling. I mean, there's people, you know, they get stuck and they can take an hour to get a a meter. And I I don't, I can't understand doing that for fun (laughs) because (laughs) it makes me feel ill watching it. Um, And in the rare cases where people have died in some of these, uh, not necessarily in the UK, but there have been some fatalities in, in dry caves because they've, they've gotten stuck and not been able to get them out. And it's just literally, I can't think of a worse way to go.
1: Yeah. No. No. yeah. I know we all we all do jiu and maybe you don't remember it as maybe clearly. Like you maybe still do it with guys' role, but that, you know, the first time you get really, really severe top pressure, and it just makes oh. you tap something from panic of, Jesus, go up the road. I, 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 still,
0: I still get that sometimes. I got it definitely more when I was an earlier belt. Uh, and I even remember one time where... um I was rolling with a, actually a higher belt. I think I was a purple belt and they were much heavier than me and better than me. Uh, and they had gotten, you know, to, I can't remember side control or mount and they, they had the smother over my face and they didn't get off when I tapped. Um, and I was tapping more because I was like, I, I, it wasn't so much a sum, submission. Um, but I couldn't breathe anymore. I just couldn't see, you know, I, especially when you're tired and, uh, overheating and then you can't breathe properly and i just i mean it was a, it was a friendly role so i was like you know I'm, I'm done and they didn't get off and so um they weren't they they could have submitted at any point and they decided to to keep on going and i was definitely uh, feeling the panic like it was it was coming up you know yeah. that, that screaming you know <clears throat> get out of here because you just yeah. all you can feel is like and i still get it and i still you know i'll try and and Not to that extent. When I'm in those positions, I just try and tell myself, "You can breathe. You're okay. You can breathe. You're okay, okay, and you can breathe. You may feel miserable, but you can breathe. You'll be okay." (laughs) Easier said than done, because you know when panic kicks in, regardless of what panic comes from, it's very difficult to control. Yeah, it's not. It's not something that's. It does. You know,
2: being smothered or or you know being in a a dark cave is not.
0: it's not my idea of fun. Definitely not. Definitely <laughs> definitely I mean, I think, not. The, yeah, I mean, panic is the thing, especially with some of the you know technical diving. That's The thing that'll kill you, it really will. And yeah, it's, yeah, yeah, yeah. Keeping that under control. That you know, again, there's very few situations where you you can't get your way out of, uh, and you are just going to tell yourself, you know what, I can breathe. I can breathe right now, which means I can think myself think my, my way through this um the only problem is, is said not letting the panic take over which is easier said than done
2: has there ever been any uh any any moments um in the water Yanis, with sharks where you've had a brief little you know sharks done something and reacted to something where you've thought oh, keep calm keep calm Has there been any, any of those little moments
0: there they've definitely i'd say there've been definite situations where i was like uh i need to get out of the water and um you know, in in I'm trying to remember now, but in almost all cases, you know, we, we obviously have to have pretty good top support with our boats, and so the boat was right there, and I was able to get out. Uh, I've definitely had you know sharks that, for whatever reason, got agitated, and mm. um, started to get snappy, and I was you know v- you know wanted to get to the surface, get to the boat very quickly, but you know one of the worst things you can do is to turn and flee um yeah. so you always have to try and keep you know face that animal and, and slowly make your way mm-hmm. to, to get out but i've definitely been in situations where um i was getting un- you know uncomfortable
1: yeah is, so is, do the same rules apply just what you're saying there about not fleeing almost with And i know you're saying you, you deal with other sort of predator ecology does that apply to everything then? that that instinct for a predator to the minute the back's turned and something's running i've got I, I, you
0: I think the general, and again, I'm definitely not an expert on what you should do against a bear or alligators, but from what I have, you know, the little that I do know about that and what I do know about sharks, you know, it seems to be that pretty much the general rule is that turning and running is is a really bad thing to do. Uh, I've heard people say the same thing, That that is really not the thing to do. Uh, A lot of these animals we don't realize can outrun you. and it definitely is for sharks that um, you, you don't ever want to uh, in those situations, let them get behind you. Uh, certainly when we're dealing with really big ones, if we're ever with white sharks, you never want to have a white shark behind you and not know it's there. So if we are in the water, we always have at least two people, if not three, if not four. So that all angles are covered because, you know, uh, you, you always want to make sure that that animal knows that, you know, it's there. Uh, and that's yeah. kind of the important thing. And, and one going behind you is definitely more of a risk
2: don't 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 ever like a shark or a bear take your back don't, don't always don't, don't. Uh, always feel always feel guard. <laughs> <Don't>. <laughs> um well how do you you know do you is there, is there things that you do to monitor um like behavioral patterns in the water so when you're you know if you're doing something and
0: there's a shot is, there, is there little things that you do to to monitor that Yeah, I mean, there's things you can look out for, like certain body language that, you know, the way they swim, how they drop their fins, which may be a sign that they're getting agitated. I mean, the the biggest sign is they start speeding up uh, and it may be more that, you know, they're turning very frequently, but the speed at which they're turning um, and then, you know, kind of a key is there's generally sort of a healthy distance that they like to keep from you, you know, which may be half a meter or so, maybe a meter. And even if they're coming in close, they tend to sort of maintain that distance. Uh, And I think once they start um, coming beyond that distance, coming even closer, that they're kind of, I think they're losing their inhibition of you for whatever reason. And at that point, uh, that that to me is, you know, I'll be a lot more cautious. So sometimes they'll come in close. You'll definitely have species coming close, in which case uh, I like to get something sort of up between me and them like just could be the fin could be a camera something so that they if they want to bump onto something it's not my flesh uh and if need be maybe give them a little push you, you don't want to start antagonizing them and i see people do this that they their instinct you know if one comes in close is to hit it or to if you have a spear to prod it and that generally just really uh pisses them off so uh, you, you want to avoid that but you want something to put some pressure back on them um and sometimes they'll go around and leave and come back in. Um and once they've started to do that a few times, if they've done that two, three or times, then I'm like, okay, this animal has lost respect for me too, in the sense that it's no longer cautious about my presence, um, which uh starts to concern me. So at that point I w- I would definitely, you know, be keeping a very close eye on that animal and, and then maybe decide it's time to get out. Yeah.
2: Yeah, it's um, quite a fascinating thing to see how, because, you know, there obviously is patterns that you can, you know, with anything, you know, there'll be little trigger signs. It's quite an interesting thing to um, to pay attention to. And I, I mean, I've listened to things before about, you know, you know, you know Navy SEALs and stuff saying if they're in the water, they're always taught to, you know, punch a shark in the nose and all this kind of stuff. But is that, is that,
0: is that silly? I mean, I wouldn't say it's silly. I mean, here's the thing, if one, if one does bite you um, and you're in the water then you you want to fight back. Uh, I think you know giving specifics on <laughs> like the death punch. You know, jab the eye. <laughs> do this it's more just like start fighting. Um, and yeah. I you know I think you know a, a, a vulnerable location is going to be the eyes or the gills. But you know, good luck trying to. Uh, yeah find that in the moment but definitely i mean you've got to fight back so striking whatever it is uh, and people have fought sharks off before so that's, that's not yeah. uh, unheard of yeah, um, yeah I'll, I'll
2: put these all in my uh, my, my memory now hopefully the I'm chance
0: you ever having to do that is very very low so <laughs> yeah
2: but it's one of these things you every time i'm going to be in the water now even if i'm in a, a lock in scotland i'm going to go is there a shark in here what did janice tell me
0: well, I, I um, you know, I worked with a, worked with a, a cameraman who spent um, a lot of time uh, diving in the world. We did some diving projects together, uh, diving very deep, deep lakes in the U.S., very deep wrecks, shark stuff. And the, I asked him what the creepiest dive he had ever done was, and that was a TV show they did in Loch Ness, where they sent him into Loch Ness at night to film, and he just was like... It was eel. There were eels everywhere. He just said that place really just scared me more than anything. I I not know.
2: Um, sorry, two seconds. I'll just need to, I, my, my low battery lights just came on. I can oh, still hear no any of, I need I to plug my light in. But um, <laughs> yeah, I know I know quite a few people that have been um, you know on Loch Ness and done you know all the tours and all this kind of stuff. And um, you know they've always said that it's uh, like I can't remember what the the stat is. It's like is there more? I think there's more. Water in Loch Ness and there is in all of the like rivers and and lakes and then Wales and England combined
0: or something? I I don't know the statistics, but it it is very, very deep uh, and it gets deep very quickly. uh, And it's just very, very dark, uh, very dark water, which is, you know, you may think of, you know, obviously diving anywhere at night is dark, but there's a big difference between being in very clear water and being in very dark water. And um, I think it's also, you know, Loch Ness's reputation is going to play on your mind no matter what. <laughs> you might it, tell you it's,
1: Yeah, it's super peaty as well, the water, isn't it? It's full of Yeah, I think that's you, what gives it the colour. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, if you switch a yeah. lamp, you know, a diving torch on, it does that. You ever driven in the snow and put full beams and it just goes yeah. like Star Wars?
0: Yeah, And so it so just it reflects the light, light and you can't see anything. Uh, yeah. But I'll say, you know, I want to add the, you know, I, I've been kind of focusing on the negative things to look for in sharks when you're in the water with them, but... There's generally nothing uh, more stunning, in my opinion, than being in the water with sharks. I mean, they're just incredible animals. And uh, of the, you know, probably close to, you know, uh, 1,500 dives I've done with sharks, a handful have been uh, uncomfortable. So for the most mm-hmm. part, it's just a, a you know an incredible experience um, and and a, and a positive one.
1: Yeah. Speaking so, to, the, to your inner eight-year-old, Janice, is there a, a dive out of those fifteen hundred that sticks out as like the the favourite one? That God, if the eight-year-old me knew this had happened, do you know that kind of thing?
0: There actually is. There is, and I and I say this because I, I I've been able to dive do some incredible dives around the world, but the most incredible was um, I did a research slash filming trip. It was over two years to uh, a, an atoll called Fakaraba in French Polynesia. And it was a National Geographic uh, film came out of it called 700 Sharks. that came out a couple of years ago. And we were studying the um, hunting behavior of the gray reef sharks. And and basically this atoll, you have a very tiny village next to a channel that's flushed by tides. It's, it's you know, not that deep, about 30 meters, about uh, a kilometer long. And living in that... Um, channel you have like 400 500 reef sharks incredible density of sharks and during the day they're just all very complacent swimming in this sort of very you know sort of very beautiful calm manner but we were doing the dives and the filming at night and it's literally 300 hunting sharks tearing reef fish to pieces around you
2: mm-hmm. i mean
0: they are going in and you can hear the coral being picked up and smashed you like it's not like a bulldozer and it's those sharks going after fish that are trying to hide. I mean, seeing natural predation in the wild is very rare. I think I've seen it before I'd gone to French Polynesia two or three times. There, I mean, you, were, you, know, you can see it 30 times on one dive. It's just fish being torn to bits. And, and often, if a fish flees towards you underwater, you suddenly have 30 sharks crashing into you um, trying to get it. And you just have to, you, you, we didn't get bit um we didn't get bit but you have to freeze and just go into a ball what you do not want to do is doing anything like that any sudden movement and you probably would get bit just because they you know are going to bite something that's moving when you're not moving they'll crash into you but um aren't biting but that is like and unlike anything i've ever seen before in my life uh, I, I came out of, when I did the first time I did that dive I was very nervous before the first dive because you know it's it's dark you we were a small group and I just was like strong currents and and I knew what I was in for um so I was pretty nervous but I came out of that first dive and I just was like that was the greatest thing I've ever seen in my life uh on one dive we had all that and then like a three and a half meter great hammerhead came in uh which uh the, the hammerheads actually hunting reef sharks so i think they were coming in looking for gray reef sharks that were eating reef fish and so it just was it was just yeah i I remember very specifically after that trip saying i couldn't even have dreamed up seeing that because until the film crew started to film this a few years ago i'd never seen anything like that before you know so i didn't even have that as a reference to say i want to do that at some point It, it wasn't on tv so i couldn't even imagine that it would be like that
2: Okay. yeah just um really cool no I'll just saying it's always it's always really nice when you see somebody who's got like a passion and then they get to see like their um you know the, the, you know, the biggest fantasies like you know playing out right in front of them. it's such oh, a cool thing when you, you see the passion in it
0: yeah and there's been there's been multiple times i mean many many times i just you know i come from dives and just like you know i, I dreamed of seeing stuff like that when i was eight. yeah uh, so it's it's very uh i'm very fortunate that i can uh do those things i, I you know dreamed of doing
2: yeah i mean on on, on the flip side of that Yanis, what's the what's the one that's um you know the one adventure dive to, to to you know go looking for sharks and stuff What what's the one that's got away from you so far what's the one that you want to do that
0: i haven't done yeah um well i've not the the basking sharks in scotland is 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 high on my list um yeah there's definitely i mean there's lots of places i haven't been to that i'd love to get to see cocos island off of, off of costa rica um i'd like to do some more open ocean stuff like I, i've never seen a mako shark underwater i have seen a blue shark but not in large numbers so i'd like to go to some of the places where you can see uh, lots of blue sharks i'd actually like to um go on some of the dives where you can see marlin which are the billfish you know with the long bill uh, and there's dives off of mexico for example where they hunt uh, schools of fish and it just looks incredible and that I, I i've seen marlin before underwater but i've never seen them hunting so i would i would love to see that um mm. i'd also like to go and dive up in the arctic uh, you have greenland sharks so that live in very yeah. cold water i would love to dive with them uh, that would be something cool as well so there's definitely you know, still lots so of stuff I have to do. Yeah. And of course, if you uh,
2: if you if you come to see the the sharks in Scotland, we're, we're going to insist that you come and uh, roll with us at
0: some point. I would love to. You know, I I, uh, I really loved uh, my time in Scotland. You know, I was living in Anstruther, which is a small, pretty yeah, small yeah. village by the sea, and and actually that lifestyle really suited me. I loved the the, the British village on the sea. I absolutely loved it. I loved living there. I, I liked the quiet. Um, and I really uh, you know Scotland's an incredibly beautiful country and um, I made a lot of great friends when I was there so unfortunately I haven't been back since I left I left in uh, end of 2015 but um, mm-hmm. any opportunity I would have to get back to Scotland I would take um, and of, back, course, you know, uh, a,
2: of course of course Anstrother has the best fish and chips in the world
0: amazing fish and chips. I, I still sell the you know I'm like promoting the Astra fish and chip shop around the world. <laughs> and I lived, I luckily lived like five minutes from there because, you know, in the in the winter, it's fine, but in the summer, the line for that fish and chip shop is going around the corner. So yeah. I would I would just go out to my house, check the line. I'm like, I'm not waiting in that. And then when it got small enough, run out because it really it is, is just something else.
2: Unbelievable. Yeah, it's such a nice little place, really, good. really beautiful little place. Yeah, but it's uh, yeah. There's there's some interesting stuff still to be done. I mean, it's it's quite lucky that um, I suppose it's not lucky. It's your profession, but you know, you, you get to go to these really cool places um, as part of the job. It's it's you know, it's uh, it's quite amazing uh, that people can make these things happen out of their, their passion and their um, you know their line of work.
0: Yeah, I have been I've been very lucky. I, I've been able to explore and, and go to you know places all over the world. And uh, there's obviously a lot of places still to see. But um, I I I absolutely. I mean, I love travelling. I hate flying. I hate airports. I hate planes. Yeah. But other than that part, I, I you know I love to visit new places. Yeah. Is there um is there anything uh, you know in the you know you said
2: you wanted to do some the, the open ocean stuff? Is there anything? Uh, in the sea that you know potentially scares you in terms of you know just the size the depth
0: is there any any of that that worries you there's you know i I, don't get me wrong there's sharks that that worry me um in terms of animals specifically you know um i mean i'm sure there's there 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 are and there's it's often not necessarily at the the animal, the specific animal, but the context. You know, like you may, I think most people, for example, will have a, an interaction with sharks where the sharks are in a complacent state. They're not naturally foraging. Even if there's bait in the water, they're not in a natural foraging state. And so you may get this impression this is what they're always like because most people won't see them in a true hunting state. And if you do see them in a true hunting state, it can be a very different uh, and much more intimidating uh, scenario. Uh, and I think that's probably true for a lot of big marine predators. Um, one that definitely sounds quite intimidating um, is the leopard seal, which you get in the Antarctic. Uh, and mm. so that is uh, doesn't look like other seals. It's actually got quite a reptilian face. Uh, it eats penguins. Uh, it's a huge. I mean, it is a massive predator. Um, it, I know at least one one uh, diver has been has been killed by one. Um, so that definitely looks like an animal you, you know you'd have to be very cautious around in the water. But I'll say that my biggest fear. Being in the water is not the animals. It's things like currents. What what has nearly killed yeah. me has been uh, things related to, like I said, very strong currents. Getting lost at sea—that that's something that I I'm much more fearful of than than the animals in the water. It's
2: um, old, I'm, this, the, 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 the ocean is something that just terrifies me. And I mean, I've, <sighs> I've swam, I've swam in the ocean, you know, for triathlons and stuff. So I've swam in it. It's something that is terrifying. It's so vast and deep, and you know, you can't see things, and it's just. It, it is such a terrifying place,
0: and then you you know you can you realise that you you get let's say you get caught in a strong current, and that can often that often happens. You know the current can suddenly pick up, or you just get in the water, and and um, the current's just ripping, and you realise how helpless you are. You know mm. there's no way you're going against it. There's no way you're going to make it to shore. There's no way that if that if a boat doesn't find you, you're not going to get rescued. You. You're not you're not swimming to shore. There's no way you're gonna you're gonna swim against that current. And and you just realize how um, insignificant you are when it, it comes to being in the ocean. And so, yeah. my major concerns now with working underwater are uh, safety procedures for making sure the boat finds me. That that is my my biggest concern. I'm not I'm not that worried about the animals. I can handle mm. most. of underwater what what really uh worries me is that if the boat loses me I, i'm reliant on them finding me and um,
2: I, I i think the um the important part of there is um you know when you're saying uh you know this you know strong currents and stuff you have no chance and the, the, you know you have no chance and it's not it's not like a well no chance but you know yeah no 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 i mean i added um a, a triathlon from you swim from Oban to you swim across the Sound of Carrera to the Isle of Carrera, and at the start you know you you, you kind of swim this way but the current's coming this way so I didn't realise that and everybody went on this side of like the starter and I went oh there's loads of space in this side I'll start here <laughs> didn't realise I was swimming into the current and it was only a short you know it was only a sprint triathlon so 750 metres. And it was the worst thing I've ever done in my life because I was swimming into the current and it was like I'm knackered and then go, I need to tread. And then you moved five meters further down. It's horrific.
0: Absolutely horrific. It is. And it's, you know, I think people get caught off guard. You may be used to going to the beach in places where these sorts of currents don't exist. And then you go to a place that has riptides or place, you know, where the currents are extreme. I was doing some work off Japan. We're doing some shark work a few years ago. And, um, we were working off around this offshore island where there was uh, schools of hammerheads it was a incredible place but um we had a professional um free diver who was with us he was a professional spear fisherman and he was also a world champion um uh big big wave surfer um mm. and so he was phenomenal in the water and so he and i for just for like you know we were having some downtime had gone for a snorkel around some of the rocks and it was these big jagged rocks and it just uh, the currents weren't that strong with this big surge had come in and i suddenly found myself sort of you know i could see i was getting dragged towards these rocks and so i was like okay I'll swim away and was swimming you know and, and i'm by i would say by the normal public standard i'm a decent swimmer i'm not amazing by you know uh, in you know compared to professional water uh, water people i'm not not, not that great um And I realized I wasn't going anywhere. And so I look up after swimming for two minutes and I'm closer to the rocks. And so then I'm starting to get the the panic because I'm like, oh, you know, I'm stuck. And so then I'm kicking as strong as I you know, as hard as I can to get out. Now, my my buddy, he you know, he's a phenomenal um, water guy. And so he had just gotten out of the current very quickly um, and hadn't realized I was still stuck because then he was around the corner. So then I was starting to get really, I was like, you know, I, I'm I'm in trouble now. I had a camera with me and I was about to start ditching my camera and everything because I was like, I, I can't get out of this current. And then finally I got out and I knew instantly I'd gotten out because I suddenly felt that pool ease off. And I realized I'd gotten past that point where, where the pool was too much for me to swim against. But um, it's instances like that that have been my my closest calls, you know, not yeah. not the sharks. Absolutely. Yeah, and I've
1: got it because I, I, unlike Chris, I love the ocean. Um, and I used to surf actually in Saint Andrews many many moons ago mm-hmm. up kind of east Sands and round mm-hmm, there. And I yeah. used to scuba dive a lot round there. Um, and even round that neck of the woods, you get you know you get the the currents, the riptides that that suddenly you're 300 meters further along than when you plan to be, and you pop up and it's, yeah. it's not fun. It's not fun at it's all. Not. The first few things you get caught in them, you're like, okay, this is how it ends. Yeah, because <laughs> it, you just know that you're at the mercy of something way bigger and stronger than you.
0: And again, it's it comes, you know, the the answer often is just not to panic. You know, you get caught in a riptide. The key is don't try to swim against it. You swim perpendicular to it. So you yeah. you'll eventually get out of it and then you can go to shore. But obviously most people's instinct is if you're being blown away from shore, I've got to get back to shore. And so I'm just going and there's no way you're going against a riptide. So then they get exhausted when, again, the thing is go perpendicular and you'll eventually get out of it. But, you know, again, you're fighting that, that uh, instinct. And once, you know... Uh, I, I think it was uh, Forrest Griffin in the UFC who was talking about. He said fatigue is—I can't what he said exactly, but he basically was like, "Fatigue changes everything," and it does. You know, you can—you stop thinking whether it's in a fight or swimming as a current or whatever it is. Once fatigue starts to kick in and you're still trying to deal with the problem, you, you can't think straight. Yeah, and
2: this sounds. Um, this all sounds eerily like the first time you roll with a black belt
0: i remember when i first started jiu-jitsu you know black belts had this mythical status because uh, i think you know compared to other martial arts it takes so long to get one and so there were very few uh now the numbers have gone up you know it, it's much more common to find them than than it was 15 years ago uh, and i i've been a black belt for six years I just got my second degree, so six years. Um, and now I'm like, I don't think that mythical status applies to me. Uh, you know, whether things have changed, whether the, the quality of white belts has gone up, I don't know. Or I'm just getting old and my reflexes aren't what they used to be. But uh,
2: <laughs> it's, um, it's, it's 100% uh, it's still a thing. It certainly was for me. I think Ali would tell you the same, you know, that, when We rolled, uh, you know, the first time our professor, um, Dan Reed. He's a, a guy, he's from Dunfermline, but he's now in Taiwan. Um, so he comes over from time to time. Uh, and you know, the first time I got a, a you know, proper role with him, it, it you, know, he, you know, he's playing, he's playing with you to begin mm-hmm. with. And then once you try and you know, you know, you're you moving an underhook and you're trying to pass guard, and then it's just like, nope. And then it's just like, oh, this is this is different. I don't understand. And then he then he sweeps you, and he's on you know his top pressure doesn't make sense. And you're like, oh my god, like I I understand how to get out of things, and I I don't know what I'm doing here. This is just I, and it's what you know we've said this quite a few times in the podcast. You know, you especially in uh, you know when people talk about fighting and you know UFC, well oh, I'd just stand up. You wouldn't. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like I was I would just I would just swim away from the the current.
0: It, no, you no, you, you don't understand. <laughs> yeah, easier easier said than done. I mean, what what I you know with with uh, white belts, I noticed you know that you, there's a few different categories in terms of how they roll with when they go with higher level uh, belts. You yeah, have some who are just very nervous and just very cautious, almost like they don't want to piss off the higher belt and get hurt, even though any decent mm-hmm. higher belt would obviously not going to hurt them. Um, but they seem very cautious or there's others that are trying to be technical and obviously because they're white belts they're not and um you know they get uh, obviously handled pretty easily on the ground but that that that's that's the the learning curve and then you have those that almost have that um how to put it their goal in life is to be a white belt who beats up a black belt and so they're just going at it like you know this is this is the <laughs> the most important moment of of their lifetime and then it's just like, oh god here, here we go <laughs> so i don't too many of those but it does happen
2: it's um it's funny even being a even being a blue belt and you get somebody so i'm i'm you know me and ali me and ali are both you know kind of big big guys um or bigger guys and uh, you know you'll get somebody who comes in as a white belt and they think they can just attack you and then you know you'll sweep them and, and tap them and then they kind of get angrier and angrier and angrier and they just start attacking you. But the more they attack you and the more aggressive they get, they just keep you're pulling their arm out and you go, oh, thanks. There's an arm
1: back. It's, There's a killer yeah.
2: There's a friend. They don't realise how, how it works. I'm glad that I haven't had
0: that too often. I, I have had a few times where you have that almost like, as you said, they get angry at getting tapped. And I, I can't understand personally why if you go in as a white belt and a black belt taps you, why that would uh, you get angry about it. Um, maybe you know they're pushing themselves, and I mean, which is which is fine. But some of them are getting more and more irritated, and then they they just start making more and more uh, obvious mistakes, uh, as you said. But there's no question, you know, the old the uh, the saying size doesn't matter is certainly not true. <laughs> you know, size definitely matters. Uh, it may not matter as much if somebody is untrained, but there's there's no question that um yeah. uh, mass, you have two people mass, the same. Mass, yeah, yeah, if you've got the same point skill and yeah. the other one's much larger and stronger, then that person's going to probably win. And even in the case have, you know, people with different skills, but one is much stronger than the other, then that can neutralise the, the skill difference.
2: Yeah,
0: yeah. 100%. It's
1: else, Especially if you look at top-level Jiu-Jitsu competitors oh. nowadays, they're all jacked, all look like Hulk.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, there, there's no, there's, you know, we, we, we have... I mean that's why there's weight divisions because obviously it 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 does make a difference. You know, funny enough, when when I I don't I, I haven't competed in a long time. I hurt my back when I was just about to get my brown belt, um, but I competed a fair bit, especially at purple belt. And um, I actually started to get the most success when I dropped down a weight category. Uh, no, sorry, I take that back. When I went up a weight category because I was doing better um, against the slower, bigger guys than i was against the um much faster smaller guys so uh, for me that that helped now of course then you find you know there's there these uh big grapplers who move like uh they're you know several weight classes lower than they actually are so they they have it all they have the strength of being a big guy and the speed and skill being a small grappler which is you know yeah uh, I, I, I don't have, but uh, a few, there's a few individuals who are lucky to get both.
2: So did you, who was it you got your blue and purple from, Yanis? Was it, was it Hensel? Uh,
0: Helson. So I Helson, started yeah, training, yes, yeah. Helson, Helson Gracie actually lived in Hawaii. So uh, ah, okay, that's when I first started, it was training, you know, under Helson. Um, and I trained with him until I was um, four-stripe purple. And then uh. I moved to um, North Florida, and I started training with uh, Beto Nunes, who was—he's uh, now a fourth degree under De La Riva. So I, I got my brown and black belt uh, from from Beto uh, under you know De La Riva's, uh, banner. And then when I was in Scotland, you know, I was training with Rick Young um, up in uh, Edinburgh. Um, and then the last four years, I got my—I've uh, been training with Cyborg at um, Fight Sports, and so he he gave me my first and, and second degree. That oh, that's pretty cool. And are you still training regularly? Oh yeah, yeah. I well, I haven't been because of of COVID. COVID. Yeah, yeah. But before that, you know, I I, I try to train at least four times, maybe five times a week. Uh, you know, and now uh, as we were discussing before we started, um, you know, I started training judo again as well. But uh, yeah, I'm trying to be I'm trying to be consistent. Obviously, again, COVID has thrown a wrench in the in the works of being consistent. But yeah once things quiet down i'll, I'll go back at it if
1: and, Chris uh, we're gonna hand our blue belts back
0: at the end of it's <laughs>
1: yeah, <laughs> it been such a such a weird time to have dropped you
0: know yeah when the lockdown when the lockdown ended you know i had i had initially gone gone back um and i had the same thing i just was like you know i haven't trained in three months uh, which it, it was the longest i've gone without training in 17 years mm-hmm. and i just was like you know um what's it going to be like um it was okay the only thing i'll say is that pretty much everyone else is in the same boat <laughs> so it's not like yeah, it's yeah. just you not training um but uh it definitely uh, you know it, it's been such an important part of my life for the last 17 years um you know despite injuries and things like that and and uh i have never stopped training and and i i never plan on stopping training so you know that yeah. this uh lockdown period has been you know uh, that's definitely been something that, that uh, has been challenging, not being able to, to do that.
1: Now, how
2: do you, you know, you, you know, me and Ali are, are the same opinion now that we'd like to train uh, as long as, as, as our bodies will allow us. So how do you, you know, you said you had some back issues, Yanis. Uh, how, how do you manage them? How do you roll now? And, and, you know, thinking that you want to, you know, you still want to roll when you're 70. So how, how have you changed?
0: Yeah, I, I, you know, so again i hurt my back especially bad when i was uh just full brown and i had to change some of my game so for example a lot of the inverted stuff i just couldn't do it anymore because of it was in my lower back and just couldn't so i started um playing top game more so you know what i do now is, i mean there's a certain period if you injure yourself there's a certain period you know if you just if you go back and train you're just going to really hurt yourself so Mm -hmm. There's a definite period right after uh, you hurt your back. I actually hurt mine a uh, month ago, pretty badly again, uh, and for the next two weeks, I I couldn't train. I mean, it was so bad, and if I went and did any training, I was going to, you know, really hurt something. But other than that, you just you just have to find ways to be able to roll around that injury, you know, mm-hmm. and if it requires changing your game, what you do, you know, so. Once I started going back, um, again, I was I was very concerned my lower back was going to flare up again. So there are just certain moves I, I, I wouldn't do. I wasn't gonna do a butterfly sweep. I wasn't gonna do anything that required elevating and, and having that weight on my on my legs. So I'd play Delaheva guard, I'd play close guard, or I'd play top position. I just would avoid the moves that that hurt. Um, I'm quite cautious with takedowns again for that reason. Um, but again, you know, you, you, you I try and train hard. I don't want to just be like just patching the mood. I, I like to, to roll and train hard. So I, I will still try and go uh, train as hard as I can. I just know, know your limitations. And again, I, I'm not a professional grappler. So, uh, you know, I have a day job and um, I, I can't afford to get too badly hurt uh, for that. So I know my limitations and uh, I try and work around it.
2: And do you get him, um, you know, have, have you had a lot of rounds with, uh, with Cyborg? Is that something you get to do?
0: I, I've managed to go. I mean, uh, you know, uh, I, I've managed to roll with him a fair bit. Uh, and obviously, you know, he uh, he's, <laughs> he's nice enough not to like to give me like a, a couple of minutes because um, he could finish me in 30 seconds <laughs> if he wanted to. I mean, he's just like uh, he's an example of a very big, strong guy who moves like someone who is much smaller. So his game, in fact that's where he came famous. you know his tornado guard. He has a style that you you don't see in many big guys. it's it's more of a small small man's game. Um, mm. but he's able to play, use that with his size and strength as well. And so uh, obviously he you know he could walk right through me at, at any point. but it's always a, a great uh, honor to train and he's he's a great. He's a great instructor. He really is. Like I said, uh, he doesn't just go in there and, and tap you out just because he, he, he can. But I mean, I, I feel like a white belt. I, I do. There's no, there's no way to deny that. Uh, but he tries to teach you during the role rather than just uh, wreck you. Yeah,
2: I know. Um, so you know, our professor Dan Reed. He he had Craig Jones over to his academy <laughs> in uh, Taiwan. It was the year. It was before. Craig Jones had the big breakout at ADCC. I think he tapped out like Leandro and stuff. Uh, and you know he was over and Dan, our professor, was saying to us, you know, like he thought, I- "I'm going to have to give up jiu-jitsu. I'm shit. Like I- I'm terrible at this now. What's going on?" And then Craig Jones went and submitted all these guys. He went, "Ah, uh, okay. No, no, he's not. He's just, that, he's just, and I no, mean, just amazing."
0: So we get yeah. we get a lot of guys at fight sports uh, who are very high level. You know, Gilbert Burns, Wagner Rocha, people. So and again, you know. I'm not going to feel bad if those guys, you know, tap you easily because they're the best in the world. Um, but I've, I've had that when you have a new, uh, an up and comer, you may not have heard of. Uh, and that actually happened to me in, um, I was training. I, I often, when I'm in London, will train with, you know, Gracie, uh, uh Carlson Gracie, uh, my, my friend, um, uh, Dickie Martin, you know, who runs the, runs the academy down there. And, um i remember rolling with one of his purple belts so I, I didn't know the name at the time you know young 20 year old 21 year old and i, I was already a black belt and a guy wrecked me i mean he actually like just i was just, just like i had that same thing i was like oh my god i mean i just got absolutely just mauled <laughs> by this purple belt. but then i realized he's one of the top purple belts in, in the country you know and so then you're like okay i don't feel that that bad because when you when you look at world-class purple belts um they're you know a lot of them are really a, a quite close to average black belt level easily. It's um, mm. such high. There's such a high level, e- even world-class blue belts nowadays. You know, you're looking at a, a, a level of skill that um, is probably more than most, you know, your average black belt would have. Um, mm. But yeah, I, I didn't feel as bad when I saw his, his purple belt <laughs> in competition, but I felt pretty yeah. really bad after getting just smashed. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Joe Rogan always says that a purple belt is just essentially a black belt if he just doesn't quit at this stage. Yeah. Because the, it's just the I hours think, on the mat, essentially. In terms yeah. of a, a skill level or move set, whatever you want to think, there's maybe not a huge amount. It's just the, the ability to do it on Absolutely. repetition.
0: I, I think the biggest learning curve and the hardest belt to, to uh, progression to make is blue to purple. Because that is when you know my progression from blue to purple went like that. And then from purple onwards it's it's like that you know the the really the skill level between most brown belts and black belts is is not that much i mean it's generally a couple years of brown belt before you get to black but but purple belt is really a huge jump up in in skill now obviously when you're talking about at the world champion level that that's different i mean a world champion brown belt is not at the world champion black belt those are two different things But, but for your average purple brown black belt Blue to purple, I think, is the most important um, transition. They also have, you know, you have what's called the blue belt curse, which is that most people who start jiu jitsu get to blue belt, uh, but the proportion who get to blue belt who make it to purple belt is much smaller. That's when you get the most of the dropout. And I agree. I think once most people have made it to purple, which is generally about, you know, you can put in five years, you're going to go all the way. Once you put in that uh, much commitment, you're, you're unlikely to, to stop at that point. So I think most yeah. people or may I get to black
2: yeah I mean I think um I I had kind of thought by the end of next year I may be you know a purple belt but I, I don't know how far we're going to be pushed back now with with COVID uh, not training so much uh, but you know that would be five years basically yeah yeah been training, is, so I, mean, I thought
0: that'd be quite a nice number it, it is I mean I remember you know being really uh it was a big event for me getting my purple and and the number of years you point to purple is really equivalent to the number of years that uh, would go into a black belt in most other styles. I mean, the average mm. in, in in Taekwondo, Karate is going to be five years. Would would almost certainly you'd be black belt level. So mm. uh, I think that the time frame is is very similar to what other styles would be giving.
2: Yeah. I mean, in terms of uh, in, in terms of uh, you know uh, you know boxing, it's, it's, I, I, you know I, I had uh, you know an international bout for Scotland. But you know, you, it was again, was you know, six, seven years in, you're still learning constantly. Like, it's not <laughs> like you know, there's just level, 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 level. And then you get to that international level, and then there's you know, like the you know, in boxing, is you know, like the Russians and the Kazakhs are like three levels above that. And you, gee, this is incredible how how so these tiny little details, um, it is. To you know, it's, it's I amazing. mean,
0: I, I started with boxing. And I never competed. So when you tell me that you were at international level, that means, you know, you, if I was ever to spar with you, you, you know, you're going to beat the hell out of me because that, that's obviously uh, to my level is very high. But as you said, it's it's always um, a big step up. And and I think one really good way to, to or area to look at that is in wrestling, which is not that big in the UK, but it's huge in the US. So, for example, you can wrestle at high school uh, and then you can wrestle at college and then, you know, you have the, you know, U.S. national level or Olympic level. And if you go up against a good high school wrestler, their wrestling is very, very good. You know, Mm -hmm. a, a high level high school wrestler, you're like, oh, my God. But when those high school wrestlers go up to the college level, then the majority of them are suddenly, you know, at a different level and it's just Mm -hmm. becomes they're no longer the the big fish in the pond um and then obviously if you compare you know at the collegiate level you have different divisions i mean if you look at you compare division three to division one which is really the top wrestlers i mean it's just like night and day and then if you're going up to the national and and you know olympian level then it's obviously you know you're at the something else so yeah, it doesn't you can make sense. You'd be very good at one level, and then you get up to the yeah. next one, and you suddenly realise you're in a whole you're in a, its a whole different uh, ballgame. It always makes me.
2: me so um, so sorry, I was just going to say it always makes me laugh when people talk about wrestling because it always brings back the, the nightmares from uh, Naga, uh, Naga Europe. Uh, F, uh, you know, one a, a few matches, and I had a a German wrestler. Uh, in the final and he wrecked me so badly. <laughs> it, it just like, it didn't, make, didn't make any sense.
0: Wrestling is so important. I, I, I did a bit of wrestling when I was purple belt and then, uh, as I said, I, I stopped a lot of the top uh, takedown game when I hurt my back and I now that, again, I'm like, you know, my takedown game is not good. So, yeah. I started to go again. Uh, generally, the no training uh, at Fight Sports, you know, sideball includes a lot of wrestling. So, so, yeah. You know, they're big on on including that and uh you know i a hundred percent agree I, I think if you if you get comfortable with just jumping guards or or butt scooting things like that which which I often do again because of uh the back I like to play on the bottom but I think yeah. you, you know if you're grappling you've got to know some takedowns uh and be you know reasonably good whether it's judo or wrestling but but um uh, annoyingly is um tough to deal with okay. you you' a big strong wrestler and I've definitely had you know yeah, yeah. Uh, High, you know, high school or early college level wrestling, big guys who come in who may be jiu jitsu white belts, but they can be a nightmare because yeah, are yeah, yeah. top. And, and easier said than done to submit some of them with with um the the just natural you know top game. I mean,
2: this was um uh, Naga Europe, Yanis. Uh, it was heavyweight, so it was under a hundred kilos. Um, so the German kid was a uh, uh, you know, six two, maybe six three, nine ninety eight kilos, uh, but you know, an, an unshaped ninety eight kilos, and he was he was a nightmare, so real strong. Yeah. And, um, and, and, and annoyingly, his jiu jitsu wasn't actually. I I was a bit jiu jitsu player. He was a far far superior wrestler, and just in the scrambles and stuff, you know, when I when I you know tried to get out, and it was just so much faster in, in those uh, transitions. Um, his actual so submissions were not great, but, you know, was such a yeah, good wrestler. That's
0: their weakness. You know, they don't practice submissions. Um, they also, you know, instinctively may turn their back because, they, you know, the the choke threat isn't there. So that's just their instinct. Um, but obviously their takedown game is takedown mm-hmm. going to be very good. And their top, their, their top game can be very good as well. The pressure, um, their conditioning is very high level. Um mm-hmm. And the transitions i mean it's a thing you know it's a beautiful thing to watch i mean wrestling is incredibly technical you watch the high level wrestling and it's just Mm -hmm. it's insanely technical um and the pace that they keep up is just like just brutality i mean it just they they do not get uh and um they don't ever stop uh so so they're 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 definitely tough to deal with and again i'm a big proponent of you know rather than you know, the, the way to the best thing to do is to learn some of that. You know, I'm never yeah. really a high level wrestler, but uh, I think if you're a grappler, you, you should have some wrestling knowledge. You should have some judo knowledge, even if you're, you know, not great at either. You, you've got to yeah. have some takedown skills. Um, and, um, you know, uh, there's also, I think, a difference between, as you kind of alluding to, uh, who may be a better grappler versus who's better at competing. And yeah. so competing as a strategy to win on points. And so it could be that somebody stalls the whole match and then shoots in for a double leg and, and wins the match. Doesn't necessarily mean they're a better grappler than you, but they, they know the you know uh, uh, have a smart strategy in the sense of, of winning like that. I remember one time at Purple going up against a guy who, luckily, someone warned me that he was a he was a uh, national level uh, Russian judo champ. Uh, and so as soon as I heard that out you better believe I didn't spend one second standing up with him I ran and jumped guard immediately and I, and I managed to, to win that match with, with points but I absolutely had I stayed standing up with him I was going to get face planted and uh, you know it would have probably been downhill from there
1: I've nearly had that experience Chris knows about this there's a guy that trains in our gym and I didn't know him at the time um, and he's a uh, Jim's either a brown or maybe a dan in judo and is ridiculously strong. But he's, he's a white belt in jujitsu because he, he's never graded in jujitsu. And the first time he came in <clears throat> and he said to me, do you want to start standing or should we start on the knees? And I was like, I'm just going to go from the knees because I'm not great at takedowns. And he grabbed me and I was like, oh. And he just wrapped me up and I, I literally couldn't move him. And it was afterwards he was like, oh, I was, I was hoping you were going to start standing because I'm a judo guy, so I'd have just thrown you. <laughs> and I've never to go <laughs> to go, what We'll just start through the knees because i would have flown there's no two ways about it because jim's jim grabs you and you're like yep he's going to keep a hold of that collar there,
0: there was a there was a judo olympian training at rick young's i can't remember his name it was a purple belt and i remember rolling with him and we started on the ground and to begin with um i was able to you know go pretty well And anyway, i swept got his back and i was like oh, okay you know obviously i don't want to stay standing up but I, i'm doing fine on the ground but I couldn't finish him. And then he just suddenly exploded. And it just was like, I suddenly, he, he, he threw me off. And then, you know, there was also that difference in an Olympian level conditioning versus mine. <laughs> but mm-hmm. I was just like, then I was definitely in defense mode and then his top pressure was insane. Uh, again, maybe not as technical, uh, you know, with, the, with Judo and uh but the pressure from it. And especially getting fatigued, I was, I was suddenly getting in, in a lot of trouble.
2: Yeah. yeah, some some of those guys
0: are an absolute nightmare. Um,
2: but it's all part of the fun, isn't it? It's all part of the. Absolutely, and, and, and it's and an honor.
0: In. It's an honor to me to roll with people like that. It really is. And yeah. uh, again, you know, at Cyborg's place, we get a lot of very high-level grapplers come through, and it's always uh, an honor for me to get to roll with them. You know, I try because I, I want to roll with them, and I try not to ever make it yeah. look. Like I'm calling them out, you know, because I'm like, "Do you want to roll?" But obviously, I'm not like. You want to roll <laughs> so i'm trying to make it yes. be like I'm not calling you out because they don't want you to kill me but it, it's an honor for me to be able to uh to, to yeah
2: me. i mean that's how i feel um Yanis, every time somebody uh you know a, a high level guy comes in to train with us it's always like i, I really want to roll with this yeah, person because it absolutely. is it's an, it's an honor to say that guy that guy strangled me yeah um, it, is. it is it
0: is and i think for most people that's the experience they have you know it's it's like uh you know, the out, you know what the outcome is going to be. if you, you try your best, but you know what it's going to be, and that's fine. It's, it's more just like to, to get to experience what it's like. I mean, I, I got to, um, to do Randori once, you know, stand up with a, a guy on the Japanese ja- uh, national judo team, Black Belt, who was... God, he must have been at least 20 pounds lighter than me, if if not 30. He was pretty small. And I remember just thinking, you know, just with the size difference. I was a purple belt at the time. I was like, just with the size difference, I'm going to be able to stall a little bit. And I remember he grabbed hold of my lapel. And I actually, it was so smooth. I didn't even feel anything. I was just suddenly looking up at the ceiling. Like, it was not like, it wasn't painful. It just was suddenly I was looking up at the ceiling. And I was like, I don't even know what the hell you just did. But the fact that... <laughs> You know, I'm thirty pounds heavier than you, with some background in 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 takedowns, and I didn't even see or notice what's happening. It, it's it's a privilege to train with somebody with that level of skill.
2: Yeah, it's um like I say there's you know there's levels. I mean I've I've had the same thing, uh Giannis, you know, sparring boxing sparring, where you'll spar with somebody who's you legitimately world class and you just you just go and you know i know what to do but i don't understand how to stop this it doesn't make you know it just doesn't make sense um, before you yeah. know, knows his and you go what the
0: yeah that's and that's that's you know again i love boxing i love the sport of boxing uh, i was just not very talented at it the 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 one difference is that it's a lot less forgiving in the sense of you know it's not just getting tapped out i mean it's you know getting your busted face uh, and there was there yeah. was that is part of the reason i was just like you know I don't really want to get punched in the face anymore uh, <laughs> <laughs> when I was 20. so, uh, But I really do. I mean, the, the, and I think it's it's something that people who do martial arts and aren't that familiar with boxing really don't realize how technical it is. You know, they just think, oh, you yeah. just punch. And, and it's one of the most technical. I mean, it really is. Uh, and most precise uh, combat sports. And also, I mean, yeah. especially before I learn about grappling, I think one of the most um, effective uh, styles for this, you know, self defence are really, you know, it, it's uh, I think very yeah. legitimate way of defending yourself as if you know to box.
2: I mean, you know, I, you know, like on the on the on the other side of what you're saying, Giannis, um So, you know, when I boxed, I was one of the guys. I've said this a few times now. Uh, you know, I was one of the guys who, you know, just meant, well they couldn't take me down because I would just punch them. And then, you know, it's not until you you try another sport where you go, ah like you're saying, you know, the first time you go and, you know, you know, did you somebody does, you know, a double leg on you and you go, what?
0: I don't understand what, how did you do that? It doesn't
2: make sense, you know, it's it's the same thing. So you have to respect each art.
0: Yeah, Um, absolutely. Uh, And boxing does, I think, open itself quite, you know, the the traditional boxing, it's quite open to being taken down. You know, where your legs are and the way you're standing, it's generally... Uh, perhaps more so than a kicking style because you're not used to kneeing and kicking. So the chance of me shooting in for a double or single and you kicking me in the face is less. So definitely, um, you know, boxing without grappling is is a big hole. But in terms of a striking form of combat, uh, I think it's definitely, in my opinion, one one of the most... uh,
2: One of the greatest things in the entire world to watch is two Mexicans who will stay close... And trade body shots, and bob and weave, and slip, and set things up is one of the most beautiful things uh, oh, you can watch. The, the hand
0: speed of these boxers, the hand speed, the accuracy—you uh, know—is just uh, incredible. Um, I think my favorite fight of all time was was Hagler-Hearn's, uh, yes. and that I think is just like the level. It, it was—you really, if you were watching that live, you could not say who was going to win. You know, until finally Hagler knocked out Hearns, it could have gone either way. I mean, it just was the precision and the um, back and forth between those two nonstop. It just was incredible. Incredible. I think unless you train it, you realize how hard it is to punch with that accuracy at high speed whilst being hit yourself. I mean, that that was, and I say this because I, I, you know, I, I started with Taekwondo. And I really kind of had that opinion that the legitimate martial arts were the ones with belts, you know, that was, I grew up with with John claude Van Damme and stuff like that. So I was like, you know, a real martial art is is one with kicks and boxing is just a sport. Uh, And then it was actually when I I started my undergrad at Southampton and um, some of the guys I was, you know, my dorm, I started Taekwondo and they started boxing and they were like, no, no, boxing is really effective. I'm like, yeah, yeah, whatever. And then we would just start sort of at one point we started sparring and obviously I, I mean i was just getting you know battered because boxing is very effective at getting in close where you can't can't kick now obviously i'm not good at taekwondo so it's not i'm not trying to say it's a Taekwondo versus boxing i think taekwondo is incredible uh martial art but it opened my eyes to uh, the importance in real combat of being able to punch and uh, the way boxers train i mean again with taekwondo you don't train at least with your hand you don't train to hit moving targets you don't train yeah. to you know, hit moving yeah. touch avoided and that's just something that, that boxers do very well. I I
2: love the idea of getting in close. It's um you know when when you know, I don't know if you watched the in February the, the Tyson Fury and Deontay Wilder, the second I, fight, the it, rematch. It's, the, it's the, one of the it's one of those crazy things where um you know when that happened and Tyson Fury said he was going to knock him out and it seemed crazy, like why would you you want to try and knock out a guy that is an enormous puncher? But if you step into the into the you know into the fire, you take his thing away from him.
0: Yeah, you do. It's
2: insane. It, you know, it's, But to be able to have the confidence in yourself to be able to say, I don't care about your power. I'm gonna stay here. And then all of a sudden, if you're not at you know full range, you're a full full extension, you have no power. It's a yeah. really bizarre thing to watch and an incredible performance. Um you know from from Tyson Fury. That was a you know one of those great, great you know knights of british sport um phenomenal phenomenal fight a really an outstanding performance um quite a crazy thing uh, you know he must have uh an unbelievable belief in himself to to try that uh, yeah you know, and that. i
0: i I, have, I will say since i got into grappling i've not followed other than the highlights boxing uh that as closely as i did especially in the 90s you know when i really kind of watched it uh extensively and and um you know, again, you know, I, I was more on the, uh, especially the traditional, uh, the the famous, classic era of the '60s and the, the yeah, yeah. '70s, uh, and you know the early uh, years, the Sugar Ray Leonard, and, and those were the, the guys that I really grew up just uh, uh, admiring.
2: Yeah, so but you know what
0: you know what what Fury did that night
2: would be like, um, be like be like having a match with Gordon Ryan and saying, here's my leg. <laughs> you know, it just it seems so crazy that you know, actually this might work.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I, I mean, I guess it does help. I mean, he's, he's got a bit of an iron chin. Uh, obviously, no one's, uh, no one can't be knocked out. One of my problems I felt with boxing was that I did not have a very strong chin. You know, I definitely felt like uh, it wouldn't. It didn't take much to get dropped, and so uh, I don't know whether I was getting hit by really good punches or if I do have a, a glass jaw. I don't know. Either way. Um, I don't want to put it
2: to the test. Get, getting hit in the face is not a great thing. I mean, I wouldn't no, advise anybody to not, box. It's not good.
0: It's not, especially no one knows how to throw a hook. It really is <laughs> and it's it's yeah. not about weathering the pain. It's like you lights your lights go out, your lights go out, you know, because Yeah, yeah. I've always said that to people. You know, in Tyson Fury's always said, you
2: know, all this crazy talk, you know, no man no man born from his mother can knock me out and you go. You say that, but if you're unconscious, it doesn't matter how tough you are, you're you can't stop up because you're unconscious?
0: <laughs> the match, the fight that actually got me into grappling was not actually, it was not Royce uh, Gracie, actually, to be honest. It was it was Ken Shamrock. And it was uh, mm-hmm. UFC, uh, UFC 1 when he fought Pat Smith, who was a kickboxer. And at the time, I didn't know what grappling was. I had no idea. I just saw these two big guys. I thought, okay, they're, they're going to throw down. There's going to be a massive draw. It's going to be awesome. And I remember Pat Smith saying before the fight that uh, he felt no pain. So he was just like i'm not concerned about submissions not really what submissions were then other than jiu-jitsu guys and, and ken who came from like sort of the catch wrestling background from japan and um he was like, i don't feel i don't feel pain so it's not going to work on me uh, and i thought well that sounds he looks like a tough guy he probably doesn't feel pain uh, and then ken did this beautiful sort of you know, outside trip took him down into closed guard and then and dropped back for a heel hook and i didn't even know what he was doing like you know he just seemed flailing around looking for the leg i'm like what is that and then Pat Smith is' screaming in pain you know tapping and just absolutely screaming I just was you know again you know it, it's uh you may you may think that there's no submission that can make you tap but uh, that's definitely not the case and that was the max you know, i I want to know I want to know what that move was and it looked really cool yeah. and I mean. That's
2: that, that's one of those funny things as well as when people you know uh, uh, and one, the one that I always go to is um, and I, I am not a Conor McGregor fan in any way, shape, or form and I ended up having to defend him against Khabib because people were looking at you know it, you know it was kind of on the chin and people were saying oh why did they tap I I wouldn't tap to that I wouldn't and go, yeah I, I, mean, I, so I, 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 I promise you. When you right. have one of the best wrestlers in the world, and he has got your chin squeezing, yeah. I, I mean, promise you, it's happened.
0: That's just, it's just like such an absurd statement. And again, yeah. regards, you know, no one's taken away that Connor's a very, very tough guy. Yeah. Uh, and anyone thinking that they were going to do better at that point, it, I mean, at any point, is laughable. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. you know, especially yeah. with a guy with the just, you know, Khabib is such a monster, and especially his, his grappling. Yeah. It's just a. a diff- he,
2: he's um he at the minute at the minute he is like to me he's like the he, he's like the 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 UFC's version of Lomachenko and and boxing where I watch both of them and and go I don't I don't understand how you're doing this this doesn't it just seems it's like it's a. You know, and people don't understand like how this becomes an art. You know, when you watch uh, Khabib slowly, you know he's got both legs trapped. You know, Michael Johnson when he had an arm trapped and both the legs trapped.
1: beautiful.
0: It's just
2: and, and you yeah. watch this going. This is this yeah. is yep. and this is
0: beautiful yep. to watch. Unbelievable. He's yep. not like a flashy guard player, even though I've, I've seen some of his tournament fights where his guard game is pretty good. But it's it's his 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 takedowns. Are so good, and his mm. grinding top control is so good, and that pinning your leg is so good that, um, and you know, you see guys who may last that you know they weather it the first round or the second round, but there's only so much of that you can take. Uh, yeah. And it's, um, you know, he, he's a phenomenal grappler, and it's also interesting because again, he's, he's not a jiu-jitsu guy. You know, he's a, a sambo, judo, wrestling background, um, and very traditional in that sense. And so it, it's, I, I really like, I, I really appreciate grappling arts in general, uh, even though. Yeah almost exclusively Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. So it's, I always like to, to see um, uh, fighters who come from the other grappling styles.
2: Yeah, I mean... Um, Barbosa wasn't
1: Barbosa's face. I think it was the end of the second ring, maybe the third, and uh, the buzzard went, and he'd just been mauled for the entire five minutes. And he kind of stood up with just this look of, like, just resignation of, I don't know how to stop this man doing this to me
0: and i don't think people realize that that mental that mental component yeah. when you know that you are now against somebody and you now know i can't beat this guy you know doesn't matter what, yeah. what we're talking about whether it's yeah. grappling or stand up or or mma maybe there's another time you'll beat him, but right now he's better and, and, and um, you and know that, it's it's the, you, it's just mentally breaking you down
2: and yeah. the thing is as well in in that um in that point you know Edson Barboza's world class, absolutely. Yeah. And getting made to look like a novice, getting toyed with, and it's just like this is, you know, I mean, it's like you know, if you watch uh, Vasily Lomachenko and some of his, you know, his highlights, and it's it's so beautiful. And you look at it and go, I don't, I mean, I understand boxing, but I I don't know what you're doing here. I mean, your your footwork, the way you're changing angles and creating angles, is on such a such a different level that he's making world champions look you know like amateurs it's so beautiful
0: to watch i I like it's one thing i really do like with especially with mma because obviously you know mma has multiple components to it but when you have uh fighters who specialize in something before they got into mma um Mm. and they're able to they are so good at that angle like Mm. the grappling angle the stand up that they're just on a different level and when you see them pull that out in these fights you know that uh they're striking is they're world class kickboxers or world class uh, karate guys, uh, world class grapplers. And, and once you get into that uh, world with them, then it's just it's just a completely different level of, of skill. I remember when um, you know Stephen Thompson, who uh, yes. you know really very high level karate kickboxer, when he first started coming up, and um, you know his stand up skill was just. So much more technical than what you were seeing. The way he would throw a roundhouse and put his hips into it at the last second, you know, just a, a level of detail that you don't see with most, you know, uh, MMA fighters. Uh, and um, it, it was just incredible to watch because it just was a, yeah. a, a different uh, skill level. I think I think in some um, of the elite grapplers, you know, when they get on the ground and it's almost guaranteed at that point that um, that person is, you know, uh, in yeah. really deep trouble. Yeah, yeah. I think it was in um, one
2: championship as well. I think was it Sage Northcutt that went there? Is that right?
0: He so went to UFC. I don't went, I think he was at one before that. He yeah,
2: because he, um, he fought. Cosmo Alexander, who was a top top level Muay Thai guy, and I think in his first fight, and he got rendered
0: unconscious. Yeah, he got very very like this, this very back. very quickly. Yeah, yeah, I mean, that was right. He went after you. That was after his UFC fights, yeah, right? Yeah, he yeah, went yeah, there. yeah, yeah. yeah I, I remember that, and um, I I didn't know who Cosmo was at the time, but then I just yeah. was like, you know, he wasn't flashy. It just was brute, brute. <laughs> just, Yeah, you know, just his there's, there's
2: levels to this game, so um, yeah. But yeah, you know, that's it's you know those specialist guys are you know terrifying um, when you see them. You know, against a guy who's
0: just a just, yeah, I mean,
2: just you know, but he's just an ex martial artist, not specialist. In- no, no, no,
0: it's 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 um, you know, you could see it back you know, back when Randy Couture was fighting, and there was generally you had the guys who had like high school, college level wrestling were very, very successful, and then you have a guy who was an alternate Olympian and he was just <laughs> at a different level. I remember when he fought Tito Ortiz, who was considered at the time a very successful his wrestling, was considered kind of very good for MMA, and Randy was like. Yeah, he wrestled in high school. I wrestled, I was an alternate for the Olympics. And yeah. when they clenched up, it was, you know, just so one-sided was, at that point.
2: Uh, it was uh, one of those things that always makes me laugh. And, uh, you know, people still use this when, you know, you know when people use the MMA versus boxing thing, uh, which is stupid in itself. But, you know, when, when uh, James Tony went and fought Randy Couture, you're like, oh. Oh,
1: yeah,
0: I remember that. Yeah, yeah that was. Oh,
1: my God. just so- flailing. Fleeing in the oh, arm
0: okay. triangle, Randy, wasn't it? Randy got his he got his nogi black belt after that fight.
1: He did. Yeah, I mean, got
0: given his black belt for for submission grappling from from that. Uh, I think it's an yeah, arm triangle. Yeah,
2: yeah, James James Tony basically said afterwards, who one of the guys you listen to now. It's actually a shame because um, he really struggles to speak. He's, he's he went on far too long, and um, you know he said afterwards that he did not he didn't do anything. He just went, I'm a boxer, I'm James Tony,
0: and I could beat anybody. And then <laughs> Randy Couture took him to the ground and he went, Uh oh. I mean, it wasn't <laughs> that much different from Hoist Gracie against I think it was Art Jimmerson, UFC Art one. Jim- Art Jimmerson, yeah. One, the, one, one glove. One glove. <laughs> like, <laughs> once he got taken down, he was like, you know what, I'm over this. Because he he actually tapped, I think he just got mounted, and he just was like, I, I have yeah. absolutely no idea what to do, and I'm not, it's not worth me getting hurt. I mean, uh, uh, but it was like <laughs>
2: And, you know, it's one, you know, and again, if people don't know who James Tony is, I mean, when you listen to the greats of the era, we'd tell you James Tony was more mm-hmm. talented than Roy Jones, more talented mm-hmm. than Bernard Hopkins, an absolute genius, who didn't train and was really lazy, <laughs> but supremely talented. And he thought he could go to MMA and just win. And he's like, you, you, I mean, Randy Couture is called the natural. <laughs> <laughs> you, you're fighting at heavyweight. You know, like two sixty-five, and you were a really good hundred and sixty-pound boxer. This is, you know, and it's just like you could see the moment in his face when he's on the ground, and uh, yeah, was... you know, you're an like, arm and I'm in choke, and you can see the moment in his face. Ah, like, oh, shit. <laughs> yeah, I mean,
0: you know, Randy was a smart fighter. You know, he was also his things was dirty boxing. You know, he he had a boxing background, but obviously his wrestling was his real. Yeah. And obviously, he wasn't yeah. going to play Tommy in, in a boxing <laughs> match. I, so he was. I believe,
2: that, um, I believe like, Randy Couture was a, a golden glove guy. Sorry, I don't say, remember,
0: I think because he was he was in the army, I believe, and he, he uh, definitely did come from a boxing background. Yeah, uh, I not if he did Golden Gloves or not, but but he, he, he you know, he, he had decent at the time box, obviously he wasn't high Yeah. There, but, uh, again, was,
2: I mean, I was trying to think though. I was trying to explain this to my friend who's not an MMA fan, he's a, a real boxing guy, and I think it was like, um, I think it may be Cody Garbrandt, and Cody Garbrandt, I'm pretty sure, was a Golden Gloves champion as an amateur boxer. And on, he was trying to say, no, 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 to win a Golden Gloves Championship as an amateur in America is a
0: massive, massive achievement. I mean, you are good. It's lightning, lightning hand speed. Um, You know, who who was Golden Gloves was um, Stefan Bonner. So, Stefan Bonner, when he came on, again, he had a very interesting um, uh, qualifications because he was Golden Gloves, Taekwondo Black Belt, and Brazilian Jiu Jitsu Black Belt. And so that was a very, you know, interesting combination. You're like, well, that guy, you know, um uh, kind of has it all and will, and you know he had, he had a pretty successful um career um the other one to me and, and probably in modern time my favorite fighter was lyoto mashida uh and a very interesting sort of story a, a sort of uh style with him because obviously he, he came with this traditional karate background but legitimate karate i think people you know there was at the time this sort of people almost looking down on karate. They were all like, well, I don't know if you want to learn how to stand up, do Muay Thai. That, that's the only thing that matters or boxing, but, but karate Taekwondo doesn't work. And clearly that's not the true. I mean, you watch Kyokushin at high level or or mm. you know, high level, you know, karate guy or Taekwondo too can be very effective. And, but Mishida had been trained, I think by his dad had trained him in Shotokan, um, but also made sure, you know, being raised in Brazil that he had to learn in jiu-jitsu So he had a, a black belt in jiu-jitsu. He'd taken sumo, so he'd actually you could actually see him do with his sumo when people would try and shoot in on him and get the underhooks. Um, he would use karate sweeps, so he had very effective takedowns, but it was from karate, believe it or not. And, um, you know, for, there was a while then when no one could figure out his style. It was highly effective. And then, I mean, people, I think, caught on, and, and I think age meant his reflexes slowed down a bit. But uh, when he was in his prime, he was just incredible. Yeah, definitely. There was that Um, point
1: in the UFC roundabout then where it was like the only person that you could see beating those guys was like we were saying the weight category above because you had GSP and then above him you had Anderson Silva, above him you had Leota. I can't remember who the heavyweight was at the time because the heavyweight change seemed to change every couple of fights. But there was always that thing where it was like the only guy that might have beaten GSP was Silva. The only guy that might have beaten Anderson Silva was maybe Lyoto Machida because he's got the little bit of size on him. And obviously all at their peak, as you say, before yeah. age caught up in reflexes. But uh, there was that interesting time. And, and then B, uh, BJ Penn was a lightweight and obviously couldn't beat GSP at, at the kind of welterweight that
0: each Although, guy level above. Um, he had, you know, BJ Penn had, uh, he had, he came very close the first time he fought GSP. Um, yeah. that match, and he actually really battered him round one. Um, I think he just lost. Second match was very one side, but the first one was, was very close. And then people forget that BJ also fought Machida. <laughs> he went yeah, up to him yeah. and it didn't get finished. I mean, he lost, but he, he actually uh, did not get finished. So, I mean, uh, I, I've, you know, Again, I lived in Hawaii for seven years, so uh, you'd frequently see BJ at a lot of the jiu-jitsu tournaments. He would often just come and ref and just hang out. So he was often seen around there. But he really was uh, also, I think, in his prime, one of the most talented fighters ever. I mean, he really was insanely talented. And, and starting with oh, the jiu-jitsu, really? he was the first American to win the World Championships of Black Belt yeah. black belt in three years. I mean, that was unheard of back then. Um, yeah. And when he started fighting you'll see he wasn't even submitting people. He was standing up and winning. Um, and, you know, again, back in the day, I mean, his, his grappling was was so uh, incredible that when you did see it, you just were like it was just a thing of beauty. You know, I remember watching him fight Matt Hughes, which everyone was like, this is insane. There's no way he can beat Hughes. It's almost insulting that he is even trying to fight Hughes. Um, and he, he submitted him and it just was and I watched that. And I was I was living in Hawaii at the time, which obviously everyone was going particularly crazy for. Um, so he really was, I uh, think. You know, I think one of the one of the greats as well.
2: Mm, yeah, one of the original kind of like the early pioneers. Oh, absolutely. Um, where you know, like a, a kind of changeover point from, you know, some of the early guys. who I don't want, I don't want to say weren't particularly good mixed martial artists,
0: but no, you know, it, you know, it was you the know. First of the fighters who were well, who were yeah, very yeah, yeah. well rounded. You know, they yeah. really were because uh, in the early days it it wasn't. You had people who were basically very good at one thing. Uh, yeah, yeah. But you know, not great at, at other aspects, and then that changed yeah. to the true sort of MMA where they were good at all uh, angles of the game.
2: Yeah. How uh, How are you for time, man? I think we're we're really we're heading on for minutes.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I we can go another ten minutes or so if you want. Uh, so totally up to you. Are you good for ten minutes? Yeah, yeah, you good. Ten minutes. I know. I I said I I. Uh, I love talking about grappling and, and martial arts as well, as much as I like to talk about sharks. So I'm happy. I'm just trying to, th- I'm, just,
2: I'm trying to thank you some things to wrap up right now. So have you, have you done um, any rounds with uh, Wagner? Uh,
0: I have, I have again, uh, you know, he destroys me. Uh, I've I've only done it. I think I've only rolled with him a couple of times, but you know, he, he's uh, um, very good. Uh, i you know, Trying to think who else I, I well, You know, there's a lot of people who come through. You know, Vitor Belfort, and they're coming through. Um, who else is uh, oh, casually,
1: not that you've rolled with Vitor Belfort, just no big deal. Just, been, there's, there's, wrote, just like, Vitor Belfort talking about early Gilbert, phenoms in the UFC.
0: Well, then, and then you know, quite frequently, uh, uh, you know, Gilbert Burns was, was training because he yeah. trains with, with Cyborg, so and he's just a, another one who really is. I mean, he's on fire right now. I mean, he really is, incredible. Yeah, 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 again. It, his pedigree was jujitsu, uh, world class level grappler, uh, which he still uses. But his stand up is incredible. I mean, it's just like it's it's as his stand up is as hard for anyone to deal with as his as his grappling is in, in MMA. Uh, so it, it's really a a joy to watch um, him him fight. Uh, but yeah, I, you know, again, we we get quite a lot of uh, you know pretty big names coming through, and and I always try to uh, roll with them uh, if I can.
2: I'm just trying to think now: is um, how good is uh, how good is uh, Cyborg's English? Oh, very very good, good. Yeah. Yeah. very good. Very do you good. think you would under do you, you just, do you think you would understand a couple
0: of Scottish guys? Oh yeah, we yeah. I have think to reach out, he also, you know, he travels around the world um, giving seminars, uh, including in the UK. Um, okay. So um, yeah, he speaks very good English, uh, we might, and we,
2: uh, we might have to reach out to him then and ask
1: if he wants to come and speak. Yeah, us. great,
0: great stories. Obviously, incredible. You know, uh, grappling pedigree is incredible. Great instructor, uh, and um, yeah, really, really nice guy too. I I really uh, enjoy uh, uh, training with him. I'll get
2: um I'll make sure Ali sends him a, a, an email or a or a DM on Instagram and see if he replies to it. <laughs> that would be cool, that would be, be, be a cool one. Uh, yeah, you, you you can only try, right? Um, yeah,
0: he would, he would definitely be uh, a good person to talk to.
2: Yeah, we'll try. We'll certainly try. Uh, another thing I was going to ask you, Yanis, is what size of rash guard do you wear?
0: Uh, I wear a large. Large. <gasps> yes, I trying, trying to remember.
2: Yeah. You are in luck. Uh, I have, uh, so I designed my own uh, rash guard uh, for our little morning uh, group and it's got a shark on it. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> that and was- I have, I have, I have one left and it's in large. Uh, so what I'll do is I'll, uh, you know, if you, if you send your, uh, your address over in Florida to Ali, um, I great. will send one out to you. Thank you very much. I would, I would
1: one at the FS to show them.
2: What's that? Uh, I don't. uh I don't. I'm
1: uh, just looking
2: up Yeah, I don't have it here. I see. It's I see Yeah, this is a shark. Well, yeah, this the shark so this is this is off it. So it's got this shark on it, and it's uh yeah, you can't really see from there. Uh, yeah, yeah, but it's uh, well, that's pretty very cool. Enough. So,
0: that's, and but, I, you know, the um the uh Helio gave each of his sons an animal. Like not only gave them an animal, but they they had an animal to represent them. And actually, Helson's, as it was, was a shark. So oh, cool. Logo, when I joined the Helson's uh, Academy was a shark in the gi, uh, which was very, I I, had, I went to Hawaii to do my PhD, which was obviously on sharks. So um, it was uh, very good. I think to me, it signified that this was what I was meant to do. As far as martial arts yeah. was concerned, that, that Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu was, was going to be it. Because again, I, I'd gone through several different styles and I'm always trying to learn new stuff. You know, uh, I, I'm always, uh, I, you know, Interested in seeing new styles. I really love uh, looking at different styles of martial arts. Um, when I was at Scotland, I was training kali uh, quite a bit with with Rick Young, who, again, talking about someone with incredible sort of uh, background and history in martial arts. Uh, I mean, Rick's is,
2: incredible... uh, is this right now, Yanis You you might know if you know Rick. I don't actually know him, uh, but apparently he had boxed internationally for Scotland as well. Is that is that? Correct? I don't
0: I don't know if he did. I know he trained. He definitely was training boxing with some uh, world-class guys. I don't know whether he competed um, but he has a very, like I said, his uh, background in many different styles at high level. uh, Mm -hmm. Judo, Karate, Muay Thai, um, Boxing, uh, Kali. I think he was one of the first uh, Dan Inosato instructors for Kali in in the UK. Uh, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu of which he was one of the first three British-born black belts to get the black belt, which they got at the same time. Um, because he was
2: one of the no, I can't remember. Was it five or six that got black belts under Maurizio? Uh,
0: under Mauricio, yeah. yeah, There was like five or six of them that yeah, got it. I, um, I can't remember who the others were, but I think I think Rick was one. of... There was three who were given it, and they were the first three. They were the first three British-born Brazilian jude- uh, jiu-jitsu black belts. I'm, He's also be the, uh,
2: the first Scottish. Uh,
0: Yeah, I mean, he's also a a combat submission wrestling coach, Ferrick Paulson, um, which, you know, which is catch wrestling based. So he really, you know, just uh, and really, really nice guy. I really uh, enjoyed training with Rick a lot. He's... He's, he's,
2: he's not a guy you want to you want to cut in front of on the the queue for the best and
0: Well, the thing is, you know, he's let's I, I definitely I've heard a few stories from him, and definitely in his younger days, let let's say he's somebody who knows what works in a street situation <laughs> and what and what and what may not work. Uh, but now he's 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 definitely as, as long as I've known him, one of the nicest uh, you know guys you would meet, and and certainly would just be like if you tried to cut in front of him, he'd be like, well, whatever.
2: Um, well, I think we'll uh, we'll start wrapping up now. That's, yep. that's about well, another ten minutes. So, um, yeah, if you if you send uh, if you send Ali your details, Yanis, I'll get you a rash guard sent out okay. um, as soon as possible. Um, it was a real a real good chat. It
0: was a real pleasure to talk to you, and uh, yeah, it's been fun. Yeah, no, I enjoyed yeah. it. I enjoyed it. So, thanks for having me on, and uh, you know, uh, you know, definitely, I will let you know if I'm in Scotland, and uh, we can roll.
1: Awesome. Yeah, absolutely. Just man. before. Just before we all head off, number one, thank you to Grant Crookshank. Shout out to Grant for putting us in touch, a mutual friend there, Yanis. If people are looking to find out more about you, your work with Sharks, where can they find you on social media or anywhere we can send them? And we'll add this in the show notes, classic Joe Rogan
0: style. So I'm I'm on Twitter under Dr. Yanis is my Twitter name. Um, And then Instagram is just my first and last name. Um, And then you can actually find my website, for work the predator ecology and conservation lab which if you do a search it'll come up which is uh, you know i'm at florida international university and that's the uh, research lab uh of where i where i work
1: cool i'll add all that into the notes awesome well episode cool. 30 the start of shark week in the can heading on to nearly two hours janice thank you so much for your time this evening
0: my pleasure uh, oh. and thanks, yeah thanks for having me no worries yeah. thanks. okay all right bye The Silly Goose Gang Podcast.